From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zaro talking with you today about the recent report from LeanIn.org and McKinsey, Women in the Workplace 2016. We're going to see what it tells us about gender equity in corporate America and the most pressing places for us to target our attention going forward. With the presidential election only a week away, we are in the national process, actually, of filling a whole series of very important open positions at the local level, the state level, and the national level. And so as a result, we're asking ourselves many of the same questions that organizations around the country face. Um, Are we ready for a woman leader? Are we ready to have a woman in the White House? What is the impact of bias, subconscious or overt, in our leaders, structures, our organizations? And how do we create access to opportunity for everyone, and in particular, women of color? Helping us explore these topics today are two women who are both helping us to answer these questions and put those answers to work. In our first half hour, we get to talk with Dr. Marianne Cooper. She's a noted sociology at the Clayman Institute for Gender Studies at Stanford, the lead researcher for the book Lean In, as well as the recent Women in the Workplace 2016 report. And then we get to talk with Cecily Joseph, who's the Vice President for Corporate Responsibility and the Chief Diversity Offer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. If you'd like to share your stories of how you confronted the glass ceiling or ask Marianne questions about how we can break through it together, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So to get the ball rolling, our first guest today, Dr. Marianne Cooper, is a widely noted expert on gender and social and economic inequalities. She, as I noted, she served as the lead researcher on Cheryl Sandberg, Sandberg's breakthrough book, Lean In, and the recent Women in the Workplace 2016 report. She's a sociologist by trade, part of the cl- amazing Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, and an affiliate at the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality. So as you can imagine, I'm enormously honored to welcome Marianne to Women at Work. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So one of the things that the report does is it get, it does a really impressive job of very quickly helping us to understand the leaky pipeline. Um, could you summarize for the listeners what its biggest findings were? Sure. In terms of the pipeline, women are underrepresented throughout the pipeline. But what's really important to focus on is that women are falling behind early and then they lose ground with each step. So what we noticed um, this year and in last year's uh, pipeline data is that the biggest gender disparity actually occurs at the first step up into management. So from entry level to that next step up into management, that's the biggest gender disparity between men and women. So at that point in the pipeline data from this year, for every 100 women they get through, 130 men are getting through. So the leakiness is actually starting very early. Um, there's some uh, variation across industries, but overall, that's that's the general trend. So it's really in those first five, to, would you say it's the first five to eight years of career that this happens? Yeah, around that point. Um, that's where we see the sharpest divide. So we're going to come back and explore this a little bit, but I want to jump for a moment to the far other end of the spectrum. So we know that we're losing women at the beginning, but we also know there's an incredible paucity of women at the tip of that pipeline. Um, why is it so important that we move women into those leadership positions and what's preventing us from getting there? 
Well, it's important because we want to make sure that we're pulling from the the best group of talent possible. And when women are only making up about 17% of C-suite positions, um, the pool that is being pulled from is very, very low numbers of women. Um, So in order to get the best people, you need to be pulling from a much broader uh, pool in the population. So that's just about quality and top talent. But the reasons that women are not getting there, there there are many, but some that we identify in the report are that, for example, women report having fewer substantive interactions with senior leaders, and that disparity gets worse actually as as we go up through the pipeline. So senior women are much less likely to report having interactions with senior leaders, and we know how much those interactions can matter in terms of getting noticed or getting the kinds of challenging and visible assignments that prepare people to take on the C-suite position. And to what degree does not having women role models in those leadership roles magnify the negative effects? Well, I think it's a big issue in terms of what I would call um, two things. One is belonging, um, and two is seeing people that look like you. Um, It's hard to be something that you don't see someone like you doing. It's hard (laughs) to imagine yourself doing it. It's a sort of idea of uh, potential self. Um, And women are much less likely to report seeing people like them at the very top or in senior leadership positions. So it does matter. I think it it limits uh, the imagination on on where we can all go. So, you know, it's very clearly a factor when we think about how extraordinary it would be to have a woman president. Um, When we were also looking at women in politics and how they get involved at the ground level, we also saw, just like in corporations, that um, getting women to enter politics and join is really hampering by the fact that they don't feel like they belong, they don't have role models and mentors of the same gender, um, and can't see themselves in leadership roles. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that when women do run for political positions, they they tend to win at comparable rates to men. So that's the good news. (laughs) That is good news. The bad news is that uh, women aren't opting in, shall we say, um, at similar rates to men. And the issue underneath all of that actually is a sense of, of one sense of feeling qualified to run. So Mm. uh, Jennifer Lawless um, at American University has done a lot of research on this topic. And one of the things that she's found is that when you compare men and women who have similar credentials, you know, all with the kinds of credentials that you would need to run for political office, men are 60% more likely to think that they're very qualified to run. So that's where we get another disparity is is perhaps in self-assessments that men, men and women out there are doing who could potentially run. Um, men are deciding more often that they're they're ready and they're qualified, and women are doing so less often. So now let's bring that back into the corporate setting. So we're in these early stages of career. We know that even in the corporate environment, if men and women, even more women may be coming out of, say, business school, um, but they're still facing that 60, 100 percent split of how qualified am I for this and do I step forward? What's happening in the corporate environment, though, as you were noting before, about the ways that the either the subconscious bias or the patterns within the corporation are not helping to escalate the women who have stepped up? Yeah, we focused on a series of things that uh, Rachel Thomas, who uh, is the president of org, refers to as career accelerants or kind of the the things that really fuel um, one's progression. So uh, one thing we looked at is uh, feedback. 
And um, women ask for feedback as often as men do, but they report receiving it significantly less. So women are uh, over 20% less likely to say that their manager gives them the kind of difficult feedback, the, the developmental feedback that's designed to improve performance, right? And it's really important to get that kind of feedback so that you know what you can work on. And that finding really builds on other research that the Clayman Institute has done on feedback, finding that men get much more specific feedback, both in terms of what they're doing well and on the areas in which they need to improve. So that difference, if you think about it, is so important because in order to move up the ladder, you need to know what you're already doing well, but the areas in which you need to focus your attention so that you can improve. So that's one of the subtle dynamics that we've got to explore in the report. What's the cause for it? Is it that managers are hesitant to hurt women's feelings? Are they not invested in really helping them grow through feedback? Um, what's behind it? Yeah, what one of the things that we identified as being behind it is uh, concern when managers reported being feeling hesitant to give men and women uh, this kind of developmental feedback. Um, a couple things they, they cited reasons. One was a concern that they didn't want to um, come across as mean or hurtful. And the second was a concern about um, an emotional reaction um, from women. And this is the kind of what uh, psychologists and sociologists refer to as a benevolent kind of sexism, mm -hmm. uh, wanting to protect women, not wanting to hurt their feelings, those kinds of things. So those sorts of stereotypes may in fact be limiting the kind of feedback that women get and therefore it, it kind of uh, makes it a little bit more difficult and sometimes a lot more difficult to figure out what to work on to get to that next level. Are there any mechanisms that women can deploy in conversation or when we're asking for feedback to help um, assuage the fears of the person who's giving it to us or to a, remove yeah, some of that benevolent question. sexism aside? That's a great question. I'm not sure that we have um, research on that yet, but my sense of looking at the data is that reaching out to a manager who is not giving you developmental feedback and saying it's really important to me to know both what I'm doing, you know, well and how, you know, when I execute well, please let me know, but just as important to me is to know areas I can and improve upon. And if you see things that I could be doing better, you know, feel free to tell me and to, to tell me different ways that you would approach doing it. I think creating that level of dialogue would be really important for both men and women. Frankly. What if you take it slightly that next step? Like in um, Lean In, Cheryl Sandberg talks about entering into a negotiation by saying, I know that you may not be comfortable, you know, having me negotiate hard for this, but when mm -hmm. I do this, it's actually a modeling how I'll negotiate on behalf of the firm. So mm -hmm. let's get down to my negotiations. Is yeah. there, could we do it by saying, um, you've been such a kind and supportive manager. Um, I really do want to hear how I can improve and don't be worried about hurting my feelings. I can take it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an excellent, uh, uh, that's excellent advice. And I think what you're really highlighting is that we need to be strategic in all of these areas in which we might just be kind of going with the flow and not really thinking about it so much, but that feedback is so critical. Figuring out the right conversation to elicit that both from your manager and, and your peers is really important, but kind of saying, yeah, I, I can take it. 
feel free to give it is is really important. And by the way, the woman who's giving us this really an insightful perspective on our reality is Dr. Marion Cooper, who's a noted sociology sociologist at the Clayman Institute for Gender Studies and the lead researcher on the recent Women in the Workplace 2016 report. So we know that feedback's one of those key components. You mentioned before stretch assignments. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to me about what that means and why women aren't getting them. Well, stretch assignments are, are something that I actually think are really important to explaining disparities um, in the workplace for women. But we don't really track who gets challenging assignments mm-hmm. and who doesn't. Uh, and those challenging assignments often come with greater visibility, and we know that visibility is key in getting promotions. So. If companies aren't tracking who gets which kinds of challenging assignments, um, then biases can creep into that about, um, you know, competence and who, who's more of a risk taker and all of those things. And that can work in a way that prevents women from getting challenging assignments. Um, and, we, and we did see these kind of subtle dynamics that women, fewer women reported getting challenging assignments than, than did men. Um, and this also happened uh, at the entry level. So it for women. So this can be a thing that plagues women throughout their careers is, you know, you can, you sort of layer all these things one on top of the other is really the issue. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's so women get less feedback and they're probably get few, getting fewer challenging assignments and there's not as many role models <laughs> and they're doing more housework, right? So um, I always say, you know, social problems are complicated and, and if they were easy and had a single cause, we would solve them by now. But you sort of see the, the moments and many, many places in which all of this pops up. It's part of what I love about the metaphor of the leaky pipeline, because mm-hmm. it's one drop at a time. It's all these little things add up to mm-hmm. erode the number of women who are making progress. Mm-hmm. And it's hurting them all along the way. There also are so many related issues in each of these things, or at least it seems like there are to me. So when we talk about not getting the stretch assignments, um, and I'm guessing that there's two factors to that. One is, Are managers, whether they're male or female, tapping out the women as opposed to the men for the things that seem more challenging? Um, And clearly, if they're not, what's behind that? But also, is some of it women's reluctance to step up to the to the plate when it's something that's risky, highly visible, um, that they're not confident they'll they'll really succeed at? Well, I think it's it's both of those types of things. But I, I mean, women uh, also are dealing with um, being judged by a, by a harsher and higher standard as well. So, you know, women don't opt in uh, often to kind of risky situations or, or challenging si- assignments. Um, and sometimes the hesitancy is because if they do, they're going to be held to a different and higher standard, right? So mm-hmm. if, a, if a male colleague takes on a challenging, risky assignment and fails, he might be kind of applauded for, well, at least he's a risk taker. Um, when a woman opts into the same kind of thing, when she doesn't deliver, um, she just failed, right? It's right. interpreted in different ways. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, cost-benefit analysis that women have to do. And so, well, some of it might be that challenging assignments aren't pushed towards women to the same degree as men in some cases or um, to anyone from an underrepresented group. Um, there's also a different kind of calculation that's being done uh, for women, too, when they think about what the outcomes could be. You know, I was thinking recently that it's almost with, I wouldn't necessarily say a forked tongue, but that mm-hmm. we kind of very simply, easily share the advice of, you know, 
take the risk, take the chance. Don't be afraid if you if you haven't mastered a hundred percent of it. That's what a man would do. You know, step up and try it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what we hear, especially recently, as I've talked with people like Joanne Lublin, who wrote the book on earning it, and all these different women CEOs, you hear over and over again about how part of women's success is about over preparing. Mm-hmm. is about being better than everybody else, working harder than everybody else, because there is, there's such a gap to close in perception and no room for failure. How do we rectify those two things? Yeah, I'm kind of feeling exhausted <laughs> just talking about that. Um, yeah, so here's, here's, I don't know how to fix it completely, but what I will say is understanding the dynamics that you're up against is helpful and empowering because what I've seen happen to a lot of women is they feel like it's just something wrong with them, Mm -hmm. right? That um, I must be getting interrupted because I'm not good at communicating or, (laughs) you know, I must not be getting put up for that assignment because I just, I don't have, I don't quite have the skill set yet. Once you understand these gendered patterns and these types of biases that manifest in the workplace, then you can kind of recenter and say, it's not about me. Um, and it's a broader issue. Now, how am I going to respond? And often one of the responses is that you, you do have to work harder or think a little bit more strategically or be a little bit more prepared in your performance review so you get the kind of feedback that you know that you, you deserve but that you need to take the next step. So the work of dealing with inequality also falls on you know marginalized groups. And that is another part of the <laughs> right. inequality, and it's the it's the exhaustion of it all. And um, at our institute, we often talk about it as the um, death by ten thousand paper cuts. <laughs> right. right? Um, and it's um it, it's yeah it's tiring. it's tiring. And is that the opposite co- side of the coin of what we refer to as having privilege and the privilege of going through life without experiencing those you know thousand paper cuts? Sure, sure. And it's also, I guess, important, too, to point out that, um, you you know, we brought up women of color, that, you know, white women, because of white privilege, also aren't experiencing, um, you know, what we would call the the double jeopardy, which Mm -hmm. is of being a woman and a woman of color. Um, So different groups have uh, different types of inequalities and different levels of disadvantage. to, to overcome and to navigate. And in the report, we, um, you know, included analysis of women of color and did find, you know, that uh, they're the least represented group um, and that they, you know, report that it's, uh, they're less comfortable um, feeling like they can be themselves at work. Um, they are less likely to think that the best opportunities go to the most deserving employees. And so we, we see that double jeopardy playing out. And, um, uh, women of color and a particularly black woman's experience. At work. Yeah, and, and that they're falling out of the pipeline in the early stage of career at a faster rate than any other group. Correct. So um, going back to that list before of what happens in early career, what are the opportunities you're not getting? Um, and while it's exhausting, it's also empowering to think if we're if we become aware individually of what the barriers are that we face, mm-hmm. we can be more adept at navigating them. But mm-hmm. what about the one that's about being consulted in decision making, being in the room where it happens? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to you know you can ask for feedback and you can raise your hand and say, "I want that assignment." How do you like? How do you get into the room? Well, that's a good question. Um, 
I think it's about, again, it's, it's strategizing and thinking about the relationships that you have and the relationships that are going to get you to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, Herminia Abara is a professor at INSEAD who's done a lot of research on uh, networks and then gender and, and social networks. And one thing that she talks about is that we don't prioritize networking. Um, we don't make it a part of our day job. And, you know, I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. It seems like the, the optional thing on my to-do list after I get everything else done. But when you think about how women have less access uh, to networks, networking and focusing on it and building those kinds of relationships become even more important because, as Professor Abara points out, when there are promotion opportunities, when there are developmental opportunities, often the people we think of are the people who we know quite well and have confidence in. Mm. So in terms of another piece of advice she gave, which I think is really important, is think less about breaking into a network and more about making your network so valuable that people reach out to you. So the lesson I took away from that is you've got to prioritize networking. You've got to make it a part of your day job, but you need to think strategically about the kinds of relationships that are going to get you to that next place you want to be or then a next organization or, you know, whatever it is that you're aiming for um, and, and who you know that can make those connections. So that, that's an important distinction. Um, we all exist in a world where um, networking is something that people talk about all the time. I'm here at Wharton amongst our alumni and our students. Um, you would think like they could gold medal in it at the Olympics. <laughs> it's taken very seriously. Yet at the same time, I often hear from people, especially as they move through career, that their approach to networking changes. It goes from being um, a constant pursuit, almost as a sport, early in career, how many people can I meet, to getting much more focused, to being something that people really don't have time for unless it's really going to give contribute something meaningful to their life and their work. And I love the way that you've broken this out. Rather than our trying to crash a network, like, can I be invited to their table at lunch? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I cultivate relationships with people, and tell me if this is what you're saying, who are going to... I'm going to learn things from them. They're going to help me understand areas that I want to grow into um, and that they are going to enrich my work or I'm going to be able to help enrich theirs. Yes, exactly. It's just being more thoughtful and more strategic um, and also figuring out how you can get connected to those people. So who do you already know that can help you um, to meet the people that you need to know? And, And also to ask for it and not to be shy about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the hardest part is it can feel extremely instrumental um, and um, distasteful in in some way. But if you can connect it to, um, you know, a goal that you have for your organization or for your team, it's it's these kinds of relationships that enable you to deliver on, on those kinds of things that matter to you and then can change the way that that process feels. I'm talking with Dr. Marianne Cooper. She's a noted sociology at the Clayman Institute for Gender Studies. And um, as you might not be surprised to find out, she was the lead researcher for the book Lean In, as well as the recent Women in the Workplace 2016 report. Um, Marianne, one of the things that um, also came out in the report, and I've seen it noted elsewhere, but um, I'd love it if you would talk about it, is the difference between the glass ceiling and the concrete ceiling and um, how that's affecting the different women depending on their demographic. Right. Well, the glass ceiling is the is the subtle 
sorts of maybe we should make sure we have the same definition of glass ceiling and concrete ceiling but my my definition is the glass ceiling is all the invisible and kind of subtle dynamics and it makes it seem like you can you can see to the next level but you can't quite see what's preventing you from getting there and the the concrete ceiling is more like the explicit kinds of um, barriers and obstacles that that women face is that your definition? It's pretty close. It's certainly included okay. in it. I think of the glass ceiling as um, you can see what's on the other side, and there's the impression that it could be broken, mm-hmm. um, that it, 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 you know, it's weatherproof, but at the same time, it can be shattered. And mm-hmm. the concrete ceiling, um, it has to be blasted through or somebody on the other side has to open it for you. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I actually think they're more similar than they are different. Um, <laughs> they're I both just, huge barriers. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so all I see are structural barriers. It just, <laughs> you know, um, and and there are a lot of them. And you know, I I think one of the things that this report does is remind us of how far we are from gender equality um, and from uh, you know and having women of color included at at where we should be proportional to representation levels. I mean, women of color make up 20% of our country, but 3% of our C-suite executives, right? That that's that's a concrete barrier. Um and we still have so much work to 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 do and so many things that need to change. And what's also great about the report is it gets into what organizations can be doing and should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things I thought uh, was, and I encounter this when I'm, you know, giving talks and doing work with companies, is that there can be strong, uh, at least verbal commitment at the top. Um, like I think about, you know, 70-something percent of the, of the companies in this report said that the that gender diversity is a top commitment for the CEO. Yes, I heard it was 75%. Yeah, but only about half of employees think that that companies are doing what it takes um, to to push forward on gender diversity, right? So there's these kinds of series of disconnects between um, kind of what I would say a verbal commitment to it, but actually getting stuff done. And so organizations also have a lot that they could be doing. So in, there's also a disparity between the perception of whether the company is doing anything to close the gap, correct? Yeah, and this is where it got really interesting is um, that men and women are having different experiences at work. And so on, we asked a series of questions about, like, practices. Do you see certain practices? And women are, are less likely to see the, the kinds of practices that are intended to promote gender diversity. Um, and they're less likely to think, think that companies are doing what it takes to improve gender diversity. And so you see some of the biggest differences in things like um, senior leaders communicating the importance of gender diversity. Um, significantly fewer women see this than, than men. Um, or senior leaders are, um, are encouraged uh, to be have like candid and open dialogue on gender diversity. Again, we see big differences. So, you know, maybe a, a senior leader says like, oh, it's, you know, International Women's Day. And, you know, to some groups, it seems like that means that gender diversity is pr- being promoted. And then to other people, that falls really short. So, um, you know, it just kind of depends uh, your perspective and your point of view. But there's definitely a, a his account and hers account of what's happening on the ground at work in terms of companies, their commitment, and their focus and what they're doing. And so I'm guessing part of that is also when you're feeling the pain of the problem, um, you're going to be more tuned in to whether what's being expressed feels meaningful or not. 
Yeah, I think so. And I, I think also for both men and women who are interested in, um, you know, improving gender diversity, they just companies don't provide a lot of guidance on what to do. So that's another disconnect. Um, it's not just that employees don't think in companies that companies are doing what it takes, but organizations aren't talking about how to deliver on their priorities. So it's like any other strategic initiative. You can have one, but if you don't tell people what to do to get there, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a lot harder. Um, and one of the most surprising things to me and slash comical was that I think the, that most people, when you, we ask them, like, where do they get their information from about, you know, promoting gender diversity, like a third of people said themselves, which is, you know, it's sort a of kind like, of a well, closed loop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, this is, you know, we are where we are, right? Because um, these, these issues are, are, as we were talking about, they're multi-layered, they're myriad things. Um, talking about bias and figuring out how to reduce and minimize bias in the workplace actually takes a lot of work. It's hard to operationalize. Um, and I think even well-meaning people who want to make progress on this issue don't have the tools, uh, and organizations aren't equipping people with the tools to, to deliver on these things that they're actually committed to. So with the kind of like two minutes that we have left, if okay. people are interested in finding tools and resources, and they mm -hmm. want to learn about how to have these conversations or how to understand these issues, what are responsible sources for them to go to? Uh, well, this report, I think, does an excellent job of laying out the, uh, the issues, um, the areas to focus attention on, and it does get into the kinds of policies and practices that signal to employees that there, are, there is equal opportunity here. What's also interesting to note is that both large percentages of both men and women feel like there's um, not an even playing field. So it's not just that women feel this way, they feel it more than men, but, you know, large percentages of men also felt like, um, you know, we had a question, um, do uh, the best opportunities go, go to the most deserving employees? Um, and, you know, only 54% of men said that was That's really interesting. So they're feeling, um, it suggests that they sense that there's bias, even though it may not be around gender. Yeah, or just that when organizations don't have clear, um, clear and objective criteria and processes for evaluating people, a lot of subjectivity comes into it. It mm -hmm. can be more about who you know than on the results that you're delivering. And that is not a meritocracy. It actually takes work to create a meritocracy. It, it takes um, checking in and, and auditing and making sure that you're reducing um, and minimizing bias. And so the places to go to find out information about that um, are, you know, Clayman Institute has a lot of resources online. Leanin.org has a lot of information online. And this report is a good start. Kind of depends where your company is in this journey, but the report is a good place to start um, to benchmark where your company is relative to others. Marianne, I can't thank you enough for joining us here on Women at Work and all the extraordinary work you are doing. You are affecting so many people's lives. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Laura Zarrow here with Women at Work on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. When we come back from our break, we're going to get to talk with Cecily Joseph, Vice President for Corporate Responsibility and Chief Diversity Officer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. And if you want to check out Marianne's work, go to MarianneCooper.com. We'll be back in a few moments. Thanks so much, everyone. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'm delighted to be back for the second half of today's show, where we are discussing Women in the Workplace 2016. You may have seen it in the Wall Street Journal. It's the amazing report produced by LeanIn.org and McKinsey that's helping us better understand where those holes are all along the leaky pipeline. And in this half hour, we're going to talk particularly about how affected women of color are by those holes in the leaky pipeline, where things are happening all through the career path that are really preventing so many talented women from making it through and on the way up to leader into leadership roles. Um, so a lot of people call that not the glass ceiling, but the concrete ceiling. And we're going to explore that and more with our incredible guest today. Um, joining us is Cecily Joseph. She's the Vice President of Corporate Responsibility and the Chief Diversity Officer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. Um, she has more than 15 years of experience experience in corporate responsibility, and she's built programs in ethics, compliance, strategic philanthropy, and environmental sustainability from the ground up. She's also the recipient of the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women Human Rights Award for her work in advancing gender equality. Cecily is the U.S. business representative to the United Nations Global Compact, where she works to advance the principles of the UNGC through public and private sectors. So today we get to enjoy her in a very public way here on Women at Work. So with that, I'd like to say, Welcome on board, Cecily. We're delighted to have you. Hi, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Cecily, when we talk about gender in the workplace, we have not often linked it to roles in corporate responsibility. Could you talk about why you inhabit both of these roles and how they're connected? Yes, I'm happy to. So, corporate responsibility is really about looking at the issues and opportunities that a company has, both internally and externally. Um, to impact and affect social change. And if you think about diversity and the issues that we see around diversity, both gender and with people of color and beyond, we see there's a lot of opportunities for, for companies to make change internally, but also to impact communities and thought leadership around these issues. So they're, they're very similar um, in the way that they can be implemented. And I really see diversity and inclusion as a subset of broader corporate responsibilities that a company has. What's exciting about seeing them together is it, I think, quite purposefully makes a statement that diversity is both a social responsibility and an imperative from a business perspective. Do those things two, two things mesh well in these roles, or is there a struggle there? I think they mesh well in the sense that they are both about integrating policies, practices, and change across an entire business, the same, you know, the same way that you would think about climate change mm -hmm. and what should different parts of the business do to just climate change or human rights or issues around community investment, diversity and inclusion is really no different. And everyone from the CEO to the human resources department to the different manufacturing units um, across the company should really be thinking about what role do we play when it comes to diversity and gender equity at, at, at Semantic or other companies. So as the chief diversity officer, who's your primary partner in initiating change like this? Does it start with the CEO? Yes. So it definitely starts with the leadership. Um, you're not going to make a lot of progress um, on any of these types of initiatives if you don't have support from the top. But it also includes, obviously, our human resources department, working with different business unit leaders, 
um, so that we try to make sure that we're doing the right things to address their business needs within the business units. We partner closely with the legal department. I mean, quite honestly, across the entire the entire enterprise. <laughs> Which is why it's a big job that you have. Um, in getting these things um, started, to really get them rolling and sustain them, though, it sounds like you are not only working across the organization, but you have to in- get the organization to internalize these values, that this is important, that this matters, and that um, everybody is responsible for it. How do you go about doing that, especially at such a large organization? So one of the things that, that we try to do is make sure that it's embedded in everything that we do. So, for example, the company um, recently rolled out some new values for the company, and we looked across the organization and, and thought, you know, what are those values that we want to have as a company? And they include things like leadership, being innovative, growing, and winning. And within within all of those tenets, we have aspects of diversity woven in. So, for example, in order to innovate, we ne- we know that we need to have um, different kinds of people and embrace diverse points of view. In order to b- grow, we need to be open and collaborate, and we need to seek out perspectives that challenge us. That That's all a way of weaving diversity and what we really hope that diversity produces for our company into our value system. Um, so that's definitely where it starts, and then we sort of build from there. When you and I have spoken previously, you mentioned the value chain, kind yes. of like the supply chain but a little different. I'm guessing that this is connected. Could you explain it a little bit to us? Yeah, so this is really um, – Thank you for asking me that. This is really about how I think a company can look at diversity more holistically and not just at what you do inside your own enterprise. So, yes, it's great if we can move the number on gender for a company and increase the percentage of women in leadership, for example. But can you imagine how profound the impact could be if we could actually use our our corporate power to, to affect change across our entire value chain. So we could be doing things from a supplier diversity perspective and deep down uh-huh. in our supply chains. We could be doing things even the way that we market our products to our customers and working with our customers, the way that we develop our products to our customers. And then what are we doing in the community to, to impact these discussions long term? For example, in, in tech, we know that women in tech and bringing girls and women into tech roles is a challenge. So what are we doing to invest in that from a STEM perspective in, in our community and our philanthropy? What are we doing to drive thought leadership around these issues at the national and legislative level? So these are all different ways that I think companies can impact across the whole value chain to affect change. It, it shows how connected everything is, but also the ripple effect that can happen if you start moving in the right direction. I want to back up a minute. Um, And if you don't mind, get personal, because you're a black woman in tech, and you're in a very, very senior role. And as leaky as the pipeline is now, it's it's it was even worse when you were starting in school. How did you get where you are? How did we not lose you along the way? You know, I've been, um, I'm pretty determined. I mean, I've picked a, an area that I think is, is on top of being a black woman in tech, I think the area of corporate responsibility and diversity is a very challenging space to be in, um, in technology um, today and over the last few years. And so um, I think there is a lot of grit there and determination <laughs> um, and, and, and desire to, to, to make these um, integral parts of, of not just the company I work at, but the industry that I'm a part of. So I, I feel very determined. 
But to be honest with you, nobody nobody does this alone. I've had incredible mentors. I've had, you know, CEOs um, who are men who have been very supportive of me, who have sponsored me, who have mentored me. I have had other managers and leaders. I've had women and men both who've been very supportive of me and who've, who've helped me to um, really survive, I think, in a, in a very fast-paced and um, – non-traditional role. <laughs> this gritty and forward-moving woman that I'm speaking to is Cecily Joseph, and she's the Vice President of Corporate Responsibility and the Chief Diversity Officer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. So, Cecily, you had the benefit of all of the support, and now you're really in a position that can help bring this support to other people. Um, in particular, for women of color within Symantec, what what are the programs that you're seeing that are most effective or where you're putting your attention? So we, um, one of the things that has really helped us at Symantec is we have um, networks internally that we have established. We have a women's network and we have a, a network for black employees. And we've really tried to focus on making these networks more than just a gathering, people come together, but really how are they helping us move the needle and having tough conversations. So, for example, we know that outside um, the company, there is a lot going on around Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on around racial equity. But a lot of times inside companies, companies don't quite know how to have those conversations. So we use our employee resource groups as a, as a bridge so that we are enabling all of our employees to start to have this dialogue around tough issues so that people feel like they're bringing their whole self to work. Um, there's a lot of work being done right now around diversity, which is, yeah, you can attract and, you know, bring in the talent. You can bring in more women into the company. You can bring in more black women into the company. But how do you really get them to stay, right? And so mm -hmm. a lot of that work is really around recognizing that people need to feel like they belong. They need to feel like they can bring who they are to work, and that's okay. They don't have to morph or change into something else. That's, I'm so glad that you brought this up because it's one of the things that really um, stuck out for me as I've done reading about this issue, particularly in the McKinsey and Lean In report, is the inability to be themselves at work. And can you give us, tell, show, tell us what the different dimensions of that are. Is well, it about what you look like? Is it about how you carry yourself? Is it about what you talk about? Um, what does that include? It includes everything that you just said, but, it, but I think what it also includes is the ability of a manager to identify that as a critical component of their leadership. So, for example, when you're in a meeting, and you, you might, and this is taking it even away from some of the issue only of, of gender and, mm -hmm. and race alone, but you're in a meeting and you might have someone in your group, tends often to be women, who sometimes don't speak up or feel that they can be heard um, in the meeting. And so um, great practices might include giving that person an opportunity, calling them out and saying, we haven't heard from so-and-so, maybe now it's time that we let this person speak. Another thing that I hear, that I hear comes up that, um, that I think is a real great opportunity for a leader is we often hear that women, um, women tend to s s 
sit back when it comes to getting a promotion or Mm -hmm. they tend to move ahead. They feel they're not ready yet, whereas men tend to embrace it even if they don't feel that they have all the skill sets (laughs) yet that they need, right? Just 60% and and they're jumping at it. (laughs) That's right, exactly. So I think for, for a leader to recognize that and to say, you know, what you bring to work is very essential for for our business and you know you can learn some of those other tactical skills and other things that you need on the job but but to really encourage what they bring to the to the table to be that they see that as a value add and see that as the leadership they want to build so So i think a lot of it sits in the hands of the leader themselves so it sounds like part of what you're saying is um to help people feel seen and respected um and that a manager is watching out for everyone and seeing what they're good at, and when they're not engaging, inviting them to engage more. That's right. I think that's definitely something. And another area that I think um, is really helpful for companies to explore is around bias training. So this isn't just learning, you know, we all have bias, right, Laura? So it's not just learning, oh, we all have issues and and bias and things that we might need to overcome, but it's really learning about how do I take those things that that might hold me back in making the best business decisions for my company, and how can I be more objective so that I make better business decisions? And I think bias shows up in all different kinds of ways. It shows up in the ways that we interview and even the job Mm -hmm. ads that we place, right? Absolutely. And we interview potential employees, it shows up in the promotions and and how we help people move through their career Even path. simply in our choice of language and all those mechanisms. That's right. Exactly. And so I think bias training is another really great component and something that, that we can all do to make people um, more successful at work and also recognize that they truly do belong in, a, in, a, in our work environment. So I'm wondering if that relates to one of the charts that I saw in the Lean and McKinsey um, report, where it was showing race and gender representation in the corporate pipeline in 2016. And one of the things that was particularly noteworthy is that while more women of color aspire to leadership roles, um, an alarmingly few number of them reach it. And that it seems like their greatest time of decline in the pipeline is that they get lost between entry level and that transition to going to the VP level. So it's early in career that we're that we're not seeing women of color progress to the next ranks. Why is that happening and what can we do to help encourage those women and to move them along? I think that. And, I, and I'd say I think that we're seeing that happen to to a lot of to to women across the board. Mm-hmm. Quite honestly, um, we're seeing a lot of women taper off, especially as they move up um, toward more leadership and mm-hmm. beyond. But but I think um, what we can what we can do as companies is to be much more proactive and intentional. So and as leaders and as managers, I think what we need to do is to um, create opportunities for women and women of color to have um, unique and um, proactive opportunities to grow. So when we see that there's a large number, for example, of women who aren't making a certain level in the company, I think we need to intercede. I think we need to be almost surgical and find out why are, why are, why are people leaving? What, what are the programs that we can put in place? Is it manager training? Is it giving people certain opportunities? Are people leaving because they're, you know, they're getting a sense that they're not, they're not welcome? I mean, I can, I can relate to things that have happened to me. I can remember showing up in a meeting um, with some executives to present on a topic. And when I came into the room, one of the executives came to me and said, 
you know, um, are you, you know, are you here to give me some documents to sign? You know, are you one of, you know, assuming I was one of the admins, not saying that an admin role is not a great role, but I was actually there as a, as a senior leader to come and present on a topic. And what happened in that interaction was interesting because I could have um, taken great offense. I did take a little offense, <laughs> taken great offense and sort of not let that leader off the hook. But the leader um, quickly um, realized their own error and their own bias in that situation. And in, in, in retrospect, and what happened and what developed out of that is became actually one of my, my great champions in the company, right? Hey. That's, it's funny. This is a story that we heard last week from Joanne Lublin, who was also talking about experiences where women CEOs along the way, like it's almost like every woman, woman has this story in one way or another where we're walk, we walk into a room and we're assumed to be a staff rather than a peer or a leader in that space because of our gender. Sometimes mm-hmm. because of it, gender and age, sometimes because of gender and skin color. Um, but that if we can refrain, if we can hold back on our outrage in the moment and acknowledge that where it upsets us, but more importantly, recognize that the person who's committed the mistake will most likely be enormously embarrassed and will learn a lesson from it that if we can bring some grace to that moment and give it to them, we have a chance actually of winding up with both a lesson that's been learned and a productive relationship on the other side. Yes, and so this is where when you were asking me what are some of those um, tools that a company can use or we can use to help, for example, keep keep black women from falling out of the workforce or, or not progressing, I think that's where I go back again to this whole idea of the the resource groups and, and also mentoring, right, mm-hmm. where, where we, for example, I can share those types of experiences with other women to, to show that this is not what you just said, not a unique experience, and this is how I've dealt with it. Right. And it really helped me in my career. And so I think um, even though we can put all the training programs in place and we can put, you know, a lot of preemptive um, types of development initiatives in place, I think that 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 interaction and that mentoring and that 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 honest conversation that can happen within a company um, that can't be replaced. And I think that can be really very valuable to to protecting and preserving the um, the type of diversity that we want to see in companies. So the amazing woman who's giving us that um, very wise mentorship um, about how to have these conversations is Cecily Joseph. She's the vice president of corporate responsibility and the chief diversity officer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. Um, So as you are working on diversity within the organization, um, I have to imagine some of your programs are enormously successful and some you try and they're not as successful. How do you deal with that both internally and then publicly in explaining how and why things change and evolve to the community? I think we we always try to be transparent and authentic and we all we acknowledge that we're all on a journey together. So this is where I think we can all empower each other to make progress. Obviously none of us have completely figured this out or the, the um, diversity picture wouldn't be as bleak as it is today. And so I think um, as a company, we, we very much are um, transparent, and we are trying to bring people along on the journey. So um, we have had programs that, that, have not, that have failed or haven't produced the types of results that we'd hope they would, 
and we then switch gears and and we tr- we try different things. We learn from our peers. We we attend, you know, workshops just like everybody else to try and figure out what could work. But I think we, we don't give up, right? We know that this is important. It's just, you know, it's it's really what it's. So I, you know, I work at a technology company. That's what that's what technology and innovation is all about, right? We we all fail, but we we get back up and, and we keep trying because we know that this is so important and so integral to the success of our business going forward that we, that we can't afford to not to not to not try, and, and we can't afford to fail. Absolutely. So um, I think true to um, the spirit of innovation, I love that approach that, you know, we've got to try, and by, by virtue of trying, you're going to fail on occasion. Um, what are the mechanisms that you use to assess effectiveness, though? What are the things that you measure? Because in some what ways, are- we can only manage what we measure. Right. So one of the things that we measure is, is, the, is the percentage of um, diversity in our workforce. And we put those numbers out publicly um, so that we hold ourselves accountable. And we, um, we, we revisit those numbers on a very regular basis across the company to see if we're making progress. And that, that is, um, you know, we talk about building inclusive cultures and how important it is, but you can't have truly inclusive culture if you don't have different kinds of people. So it is important to measure um, the different kinds of people by race or gender. Um, that is very important. We also measure um, how employees feel about the company. So we do we do various surveys throughout the year to get a sense of employees. We do that when they're at when they're here as employees and when they exit the company to get a sense of you know why are they leaving? Are we seeing differences between the genders? Um, are we seeing differences between the races as far as how people respond? to surveys. So we do a lot of that kind of measurement um, across the company on a regular basis, and we publish a lot of those results. It's really encouraging to hear um, how deeply woven into the organization it is, the commitment that the organization's made just by virtue of having your role, and the depth of insight and passion that you bring to it. Cecily, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Women at Work. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this really important topic. Oh, it's critically important. So keep up the good work. We really loved having you here. Thank you. That was Cecily Joseph. She's the Vice President of Corporate Responsibility and the Chief Diversity Officer at Symantec, the global cybersecurity leader. Um, I want to also thank Marianne Cooper and Cecily Joseph, our amazing guests today. And, of course, producer Patty Hall, sound engineer Dion Simkin, and Dan Baker, our marvelous production assistant, Allie Freed. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash businessradio. Um, please join us next week where we'll be talking with former Fox News contributor and American University professor Jane Hall. She's returning to the show to talk with us about election results and what it means for women at work. In between now and then, we hope you will all exercise your hard-won right to vote. Each vote matters, perhaps never before like it does right now. Thanks so much for listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow. We'll talk next week. 